Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. Real, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Liverwurst. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the first Hitchcock film in the Next Real collection. Spellbound shows us just how easy therapy and murder can be. Don't forget this man. He has plenty to do with the terrifying mystery that causes this glamorous woman to risk her life and reputation in a reckless experiment. A woman who, because of her consuming love for this man, gambles everything to unlock the fearful secret in his heart. What insidious meaning did he read into the markings on a tablecloth? Why, even when he held his sweetheart in his arms, did he gaze in fear at the dark lines of her robe? These are some of the clues in the motion picture which bears Hollywood's most distinguished mark of quality. I take it this is your first honeymoon. Yes. I mean it. 
It would be if it were. We told you not to forget this man. He is Alfred Hitchcock, the famous director whom you are not likely to forget after you see Spellbound. This uh, episode, Andy, this gets a Hitchcock tag. It also gets, obviously, an Ingrid Bergman tag because it's uh, the next in our Ingrid Bergman series. Uh, She plays the uh, lovely and talented uh, doctor. She's very talented. Dr. Constance Peterson. She's so talented, she's practically a mind reader, you might say. Uh, Dr. Constance Peterson. And uh, it is a, a story of the time. Um, what what did you think of Spellbound? How did this this first entry into the next reel's Hitchcock collection uh, hit you? Well, it's not one of my favorite Hitchcock films, but I do enjoy it. That being said, it is a film I feel like you really need to take with a grain of salt when you watch it because the the psychiatric practices going on in the film aren't exactly like that strong um it's it's kind of funny you are, actually you're so gentle dr nelson you're a very gentle gentle I, practitioner I try, I try yes it's you know it's actually pretty interesting to watch uh in context of how this film uh fit into kind of psychiatry in film and i think that story really actually is pretty interesting and uh, it might be more interesting one could say than than how it is practiced in the film but uh, that being said and uh, you know I do really struggle with the romance between our uh, protagonist and and uh, Gregory Peck when they fall in love because it is such a uh, just a cinematic love at first sight moment and you know I I I guess it works in context of the story, but it's a little hard to buy. I much prefer um, kind of just the the rest of the story, but even then, it's it's a it's a it's an entertaining story um, for some of its pieces, but it's not like I said one of my favorite Hitchcock's. This is one of those movies that I found enormously frustrating to watch as a movie because. Of it, it violates so much of, you know, the trust that I have in these stories and building suspense. And I mean, it just it it, it cheapens so much uh, of itself uh, by the way it handles its central sort of theme. Right. This idea of therapy um, and of, you know, psychoanalysis and PTSD and the guilt complex and the way they handle this is so bad. It's so bad uh, that it's it's hard for me to watch but i say that with a giant but uh it's it's one of those movies that i think if i put on the ebert filter right does this movie is it successful in what it was trying to do that at the time it was made i think there's a lot to be said for that right that this was a movie that was made at a time when you know hundreds of thousands of soldiers were coming home from war with ptsd like this was figuring out how to practice therapy practice psychoanalysis on these people was very much of a time here in in the history of of therapy practitioner or like cognitive behavioral therapy uh, all of these things this was this was a major uh, theme of the 40s and 50s and so uh, for them to be attempting to take this on in this movie knowing how little they even knew at the time of of, of what would actually work on these <laughs> on these people and and how Hitchcock was was sort of I would say forced to simplify uh, you know the the themes and practices to make the movie. Uh, I think there's a there's a lot to be said for what it was trying to do. And insofar as I don't enjoy watching the movie today uh, for those reasons, I love what it was trying to say for the people it was trying to say it to. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I mean it's it's an interesting story behind it as far as how it kind of came to be because that's something that that uh, David O. Selznick. This is uh, you know a Selznick picture. He had a contract with uh, Hitchcock from the time of Rebecca, and this was one of the three films they did together. Uh, he really found uh, psychoanalysis to be very effective for himself. And he wanted to make a story about psychoanalysis because he found it to be so effective. And uh, much like the female psychiatrist that he was seeing, he wanted Hitchcock to 
to uh, kind of put this woman as kind of the protagonist of this story, loosely based on this book that uh, it's so funny how it uh, it says it in the credits. It's not even really based on it. Is uh, what does it say? Um, suggested, suggested by, by yeah, right? the suggested house of by Doctor Edwards. Exactly. Um, so it's it's only loosely based on it because you know Selznick really wanted to do this story about psychotherapy because he was finding it so useful. He required Hitchcock to use his own psychiatrist, May E. Rom, uh, to be the the advisor for the film. Now, Hitchcock wasn't a big fan. He apparently clashed with her quite a bit and would often tell her things when she would suggest things need to be a certain way. In his perfect Hitchcock droll way, he would say, my dear, it is only a movie. (laughs) And... (laughs) <laughs> so just very, very, good. Good. very much dismiss her. And um, but still, she became kind of this uh, this figure in Hollywood, which I think is really interesting at the time. People were kind of looking for more of this sort of thing. And she very much became this figure in Hollywood who, uh, you know, she it was a man's world, kind of the world of psychiatry. But she had kind of become a star in it largely because of this. And she was, uh, you know, not just kind of the advisor for Hollywood to show how to depict this sort of thing in films, but also ended up kind of going to parties all all over the place. And she was, she had tons of uh, stars and filmmakers as patients. It was very much one of these sorts of things where she really kind of fit into that world. And I think. I don't know. I I find it to be really interesting that the the way that psychoanalysis fits into the film, it ends up becoming an interesting blend of how psychoanalysis actually worked at the time and the way Mm -hmm. that people kind of thought of it and the study of dreams and all this stuff to the point where she I mean, there were some things that she actually told Hitchcock that he couldn't include or technically, I guess she would tell Selznick and he would tell Hitchcock there was a dream involving Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman dancing. She said, dancing in a dream is a symbol of sexual intercourse. And of course, because of that, and the censors, Selznick ordered it eliminated. Right. Strange things like that. But uh, it, so it's a blend of those interesting elements. And then I think Hitchcock's uh, decision to purposefully just do his own thing and include elements like Salvador Dali's dream sequence just to make it, you know, allow himself to have a little more fun with it. So I think in the end, it ends up being not a great way to look at psychoanalysis, but an interesting look at how some people were looking at it at the time. Well, and and I don't want to get too far from Selznick because his story, I think, of the what they've they've got in the movie uh, around the guilt complex, uh, you know, vis-a-vis why, or I should say, uh, and why he was going to therapy, uh, I think is really important. Like, this was an incredibly personal movie for him. He had lost his brother, Myron Selznick, who was apparently a raging alcoholic. We've, I, I know we've talked a little bit about that before. Um, and and felt tremendous guilt that at his inability to keep his brother alive. And uh, so, you know, when you see that, that flashback sequence when Gregory Peck has that memory of his brother sliding down the the thing and you know impaling like himself yeah. on the fence. That's a that's a horrific sort of you know, but but metaphor that's very close to David's um, Selznick's you know life uh, and as he he carried the guilt for losing his brother. So you can kind of see why this movie was so important to him. And also, you know, not to call upon your Hitchcock impression again, but also why Hitchcock as a filmmaker might not be as interested in just, you know, airing the, the uh, analysis of his uh, producer, you know, in his film. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting way that this story Uh, came to be and it's i think it makes the film more interesting to look at when you know these elements and how they kind of play into the whole thing it doesn't make it a better film it still has plenty of issues but i uh, i don't know it's one of those i i find it a very easy watch i enjoy a lot of elements in it i enjoy the the uh, a, a number of the characters and the relationships and i enjoy the just kind of the the craziness of of watching this odd psychotherapy and the way that these sessions play out and this 
constant need of of Constance, Doctor Constance, to uh, to kind of help this this patient who ostensibly is a murderer, yet she's in love with him and is just like, I'm going to help you. And it's 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 a strange little movie. Really totally is. unbelievable. Totally unbelievable as a therapist. And she is a has a terrible choice in men. It's just <laughs> not not good. What do we I mean, you know, if you I, I don't know, it's even hard to ask this question, right? Like, what do you think of Bergman's performance in this terrible, terrible role? Well, it's actually I actually don't think it's a terrible role. I think the the love story is what's terrible, but I actually really like and I think I can see why she probably chose it because yeah. it's a really interesting opportunity to play a female in a male's world who is very much in kind of a power position. And I think that it's actually really exciting to see that play out. I am frustrated and I, I'm sure this is what you were just alluding to by the way that the love story plays out and the the frustrating way that it ends up kind of diminishing her character a little bit. Well, it, 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 that's exactly right. It's nonsense. And it's incredibly frustrating. And it uh, it betrays what otherwise could have been that that strong role that you're talking about, that role that I'm going to call the fantasy therapist that we, we could have gotten. In, instead, you know, I read a, a comment that uh, somebody had said, Spellbound is to therapy like the net is to, you know, uh, computers or like hackers is to hacking. You know, it's it's just it's just, you know, nonsense by today's eyes. And that I think, um, you know, I think we it was it was so close uh, to, to giving us something that that I think would give us a character with agency uh, and. And in fact, it it makes me really want to see a movie like this uh, or this film remade, um, you know, with with sort of today's practices and standards and today's understanding of what this stuff is, uh, because I think it would be a much better movie. As it stands, Bergman is, you know, she is berated as a woman, right? I should, berated is too hard a word, but she's she is um, often, uh, you know, obviously shunned as a woman you know why why do you bring these typical female responses to me says her mentor <laughs> dr uh Brulov, you know uh, uh they're all, all every one of the male characters you can tell are are you know putting her down she doesn't really have a comeback to that right she's she just oozes through scenes and loves her fancy clothes, as she says on the train. I mean, she's just one hair flick away from removing her glasses and being the princess transformation. And I find that frustrating. Well, it's it's frustrating. It's it's actually I found it to be I mean, I I think I'm there with you, but I also border on this line between it's frustrating, but I I know that Hitchcock does some interesting things with his female characters. Granted, he is very much kind of that. We've talked about the the, the male gaze and everything, yeah. but and the way that he kind of uh, obsesses over the the way that he portrays his females in his film. But I do also think that the, that he has had some some interesting strong female characters that I end up enjoying. And I I really am frustrated here because I'm really on the border because. I feel like she's combating these people, but at the same time, everything that's happening and everything that they're saying is is so of the time and so typically what they would do to diminish her. And the way that they portray her from the beginning, I felt like, you know, it was really frustrating because I feel like she's a strong therapist and there's a, a, a really interesting er element to her character that works really effectively. On the flip side of that, though... Is it only because she is so closed off and can't love at all? Is that why <laughs> that she's such a good psychiatrist? And it's frustrating that that's what they play it as, where she's only a good shrink because she's closed she's off to also emotion. She's frigid. Yeah. And, and so it's frustrating because I feel like they're there, but so many times I feel like they're making these choices that – Granted, I have to look at it as a 1945 film. I, it's not surprising that they made these choices, but it still is frustrating when it is a character who I found to be pretty strong, you know? I, I totally do. Now let's let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, Peck, Gregory Peck and his dissociative disorder of handsomeness. 
<laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting. Gregory Peck, I can't help but agreeing with uh, the interview between Francois Truffaut and Alfred Hitchcock, which is, you know, very famous interview that was released in a wonderful book, uh, Hitchcock Truffaut, that kind of broke it all down and actually subsequently a film. But they were talking about Gregory Peck, and uh, I, I think that it's pretty... Um, I, I don't know. I feel that Gregory Peck is a little bit of a weak actor in Hitchcock's films. And I think that that's something that Truffaut kind of pointed out to Hitchcock. He said, another serious weakness of this film, and this also applies to the Paradigm case, is Gregory Peck. Whereas Ingrid Bergman is an extraordinary actress, ideally well-suited to your style, Gregory Peck isn't a Hitchcockian actor. He's shallow for one, but the main thing is the lack of expression in his eyes. And I don't know if I wholeheartedly agree with with kind of how he's describing Gregory Peck, because I, I do think there's a lot of interesting performances Peck has done um, since this film. But I do feel that maybe he's not the best actor for Hitchcock's films. He's not the the Jimmy Stewart or the Cary Grant, you know, and, and he ends up being an actor that I struggle with a little bit in this film. Yeah, I don't um I uh I don't know how to approach this one because I don't have as much of a problem um with him in this film maybe he's, he he does parade around like he is made of beautiful beautiful wax. I I do agree <laughs> that there is a sense of of expressionless on his expressionlessness on his face uh, and I think he becomes a bit of a buffoon when he is asked to be in a trance-like state, right? When he sees the lines and the white uh, bedding and he has to to do his little, you know, catatonic act. He, he struggles with that. I struggle with him there. Uh, but I, I do find him incredibly charming. And I think he comes with, a, a, you know, I... I I just give him credit for this being an earlier film for him. Sure, um, you know that that he was a he was young here, um, and I, I don't know. Did you have any of the same problem that we've had in the past with the age difference between these characters? I mean, that had to be an improvement in this movie. Yeah, very much so. I mean, they're practically the same age. I mean, who'd have thought that they could cast actors that were practically the same age to work together? I, I think they actually hang a lantern on the, the central problem of casting an actor and, and a story that has an actor of this age that he is he becomes unbelievable almost instantaneously on his introduction. Because he is <laughs> he's being presented as a guy who could maybe come in incredibly take over this this facility. Uh, and that's, you know, nonsense. He looks very, well, very young. Yeah. But to that end, and, I feel like they they give their out pretty quickly for that, because right away you have uh, the the head of the uh, institute, Dr. Murchison, saying he's awfully young. And then you're instantly in this, you know, amnesia and he's not the real guy. And so I think that they get away from that pretty quickly for us. But but yeah, if they if they lingered on that any longer, I think they would have yeah. run into some serious issues because, well, yeah. Yeah, interestingly though, that's not my challenge with it, right? And my challenge gets to the Hitchcockianness of it. And and this is what I'm I'm really interested in your in your take on because I know you've you're in the middle of doing some some Hitchcock review uh, on your end. Uh and so I'm curious because when he come, when he walks in and we are introduced to him and he's so young and vibrant and and all of these doctors somehow are able to just kind of oh well yes he is well that's weird hmm you know they kind of move on <laughs> the 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 problem is i'm i'm already out of the suspense of it right i'm i'm coming into this thinking that this is going to be uh, this is going to be kind of a hitchcock thing it's going to be a thing where i'm going to be looking for uh the twists and turns and then Gregory Peck comes in, and suddenly I'm thinking, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, for some reason, I am not engaged in the suspense around his character, and I, I wonder if that is because I am not allowed to be bamboozled at all by the fact that uh, he, he just doesn't fit in, in this cadre of of doctors. Like there is no plausible reason that he should be there they should have figured that out even sooner than than they did and 
given us a chance to build some suspense. As a result, this whole thing doesn't feel very suspenseful or Hitchcockian to me. Until yeah, we, I have a few scenes, but but anyway, go ahead. No, I, and I I definitely see what you're saying, and I think the the main issue that we have is that he ends up being largely the MacGuffin here and, and kind of the story of, of how he kind of ended up fitting into this role. It's largely inconsequential. It's not very exciting. And yeah. you know, how Dr. Murchison ends up being involved. It's, it's, it, you know, it is what it is. It ends up kind of, uh, kind of being pretty, pretty passable as far as mysteries go. And I think, you know, Gregory Peck watching him, come into the facility and play the role of the doctor you're right it might have been stronger if he came in as as a young new doctor instead of the head of the institute and if they had found a way to write him in where it would have been a more logical uh, position for him to kind of be entering where we could have bought it and it would have albeit it would have been a, a short period still between kind of the the setup and the payoff as far as his the mystery behind his character but at least it would have been something that you could have bought more and that could have helped well it allows for a little bit of that insidiousness right it's that first narrative betrayal where we're looking at where we get to be surprised with our you know focal sort of characters that this character isn't who he seems to be right yeah. and i get None of that in this movie. Immediately, Gregory Peck walks in, and I'm thinking, "Well, he's not who he seems to be," and <laughs> I feel like it's a it's a pretty significant missed opportunity pretty early in the film. So I don't want to belabor that too much, but I, I think I think you get my my issue. How does yeah. this live up to uh, the, the rest of our our sort of standards for Hitchcock uh, mysteries? It's not as strong. I mean, it still is an interesting one. It's, I guess I would call it kind of B-level Hitchcock as far as looking at the films that he's done and, and, uh, kind of what he's doing with them. Um, as you mentioned, I have been going through and rewatching, uh, I have my own little, uh, challenge. I'm rewatching all of Hitchcock's, uh, sound films, all the ones that, uh, that he had made starting back in England and then moving over to, um, the uh, moving over to Hollywood. And this is it's pretty far down the list of the films that he's made. I mean, this is the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth film that he's made in Hollywood. And it's, I, I would argue that it's already not one of the better films that he's made in Hollywood. I mean, I wouldn't even put it in as one of his better overall films of the of the I mean this would be like the 21st sound film that he's directed and you know it's pretty pretty much middle of the road is that because of the Selznick uh connection and the way that Selznick likes to really influence the way that the films that he's producing are made and because he's very much a dictator when it comes to that and Hitchcock's the same way did it lead to clashes and it kind of created the film that we ended up with I don't know um but it doesn't land as one of his stronger films I mean he certainly I think has a lot of great British sound films that he did and he'll certainly find his uh, kind of the 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 real groove for his uh films in the 50s and 60s in the in the states but um I I don't know I I guess it's I, I, it's a it's an interesting one. I I find it very easy to watch. It's a very enjoyable film to watch. The performances, the dream sequence, there are elements in here that make it an enjoyable watch. But it's not one of his great mysteries. Well, we do get some of the really fun sort of Hitchcock kind of visual tropes that I quite like. And, you know, one of them is that whole subjective camera. Like he just we I, I love how often he puts us in the eyes of the the characters that we're we're following i think it does build intensity um you know we're going up the stairs we, there's a lot of going up and down stairs in this thing because apparently all the doctors live together it's like a boarding house and they yeah i mean 
I don't know. I it's it's very strange, but it gives us a lot of opportunity for for that sort of uh you know dark house creeping upstairs looking under doors that that sort of experience and it gives us the subjective camera of the final giant hand big gun which is you know I mean if you have a memory of this movie it's likely because of the giant gun, right? Yeah, I mean, and and they they build to a well because they use POV shots pretty, I I won't say consistently, but they are running through the film a good number of times, whether it's Gregory Peck's POV or Ingrid Bergman's POV. And so by the time we get to this POV, it's another POV in a film that has a lot of POVs. So it's not a surprise, but what is a surprise is the way that that POV plays out. And it is really fascinating because as you said, it's this, I mean, it looks like basically we are at this point, we are Dr. Murchison's POV looking at uh, Dr. Peterson as she's walking out and she's basically tempting him to shoot her. And, and, you know, and she's like, you're not going to do it. And she walks to the door and we track her with the gun and which is so interesting, just coming, it's like we're now in the murderer's head, which is such a Hitchcockian thing to do. Yeah. And then seeing how he turns it and, and then looks at it and then points it at himself and shoots and kills himself. And we are like, just like, it, it's it's an incredibly powerful and interesting way to play the scene out and very Hitchcockian. And uh, I think it's emphasized by the fact that when he shoots himself, there are two two frames of the of the gunshot basically the blast that are red in a black and white film when you have that it just really hits you and it's uh yeah it's an incredibly powerful moment i i think that that alone is something that makes this film uh stand out i absolutely agree especially because i think in watching Bergman as she is crossing the room, Constance Peterson, the doctor, I think this is the first attempted use of the force. As she is, <laughs> she's trying to, like, it's just, it's ridiculous. Thank God for the gun, because the rest of it is just crazy. <laughs> uh, this film is also notable for uh, its dream sequence, a dream sequence that was uh, contributed to uh, by the great Salvador Dali. And we see only a fraction of it. It's, yeah, apparently when Hitchcock, I mean, he kind of had this idea. He wanted to to bring Salvador Dali in because of this whole idea of the psychoanalysis and all this sort of stuff and do this whole dream sequence. And I, I don't think that Selznick was as keen on the idea. And um, by the time that it ended up happening, I mean, Hitchcock kind of put a plan in place with Dali, and they came came up with this really interesting dream sequence. Um, once once it kind of came to happen, though, it was way too long for Selznick. And Hitchcock wasn't even around when they filmed it. He, um, uh, William Cameron Menzies, who was the production designer way back in like Gone with the Wind, he ended up being the one that Selznick hired to shoot this thing and kind of build these crazy sets that were inspired by Dolly's images and direct the sequence. And uh, Hitchcock was kind of already done with it. And it was um, the whole thing. Apparently, according to Ingrid Bergman, she said it lasted 20 minutes. In the film, we only have two minutes. Uh, and so who knows exactly? But I did see something with there's, there's a part where... Ingrid Bergman is like dressed up as the goddess Diana in the dream at one point. And it's just like crazy, crazy stuff. So I, I would love to see it. But unfortunately, uh, most people believe that the all the footage that was excised um, no longer exists. They have found some production stills, but um, but that's pretty much it, unfortunately. This is, you know, I, I I can't help but sort of contextualize it. It's sort of like the dance scene in the red shoes. So it's this this right. sort of uh, that takes us out of the film a little bit and gives us a little miniature, uh, a little miniature experience inside the film. And I, I can see why they would trim that down. Yeah, it's it's interesting and it's frustrating. I would love to see the deleted scene. Of the yeah. whole dream sequence, yeah. it, largely as a separate thing. I think what's in here is all we really need. I think it 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 does what it needs to for the story. And I don't think I think it would have just been too much if they had a twenty minute dream sequence in here. 
that would have been like seriously like deep psychoanalysis that we wouldn't have needed. But I would love to have seen it because I find Dali's images so interesting. All the images of the eyes and the way that the roof is representative of the snow, uh, snow slopes, the ski slopes. And the uh, just all of the way that the figures play out and the, the figure with no face. I mean, there's so many interesting things going on in it. And I just, I don't know, I found it to be really interesting. I think what I find uh, cool is that Hitchcock really kind of wanted to do this because he really hated how dreams up to this point were always kind of shot as kind of almost like, you know, grease on the lens type of things with really kind of foggy imagery and everything. He wanted it to be very stark and very bright. And so he wanted it shot outside. He wanted to make it very much kind of crisp. And uh, and so they did. I mean, they didn't end up shooting it outside. They shot it on a soundstage, but they still really kind of did everything they could to make it feel um, very, uh, just very sharp imagery. What do we know about the good Ben Hecht? Ben Hecht is a writer who has been around Hollywood for a heck of a long time. I feel like we had to have talked about something that he's been involved with because he's been around so stinking long. And obviously we'll be, uh, you know, we'll be talking about him Next week, when we talk about Notorious, I believe that we may have mentioned that he came on to um, Gone with the Wind per Selznick's request to do some doctoring with the script. I don't he didn't receive any credit, but I feel like we might have brought him up in that context. He is a big Hollywood writer, a guy who's done lots of things and so many things. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a and, you know, he's worked with Hitchcock. Since this and since Notorious as well, like coming in and doing some uncredited uh, rewrites on some of his other projects like Rope and Strangers on a Train and even the Paradigm case with uh, Gregory Peck. Wow. This guy has an amazing list of credits and uh, look all the way up to look at this because uncredited on Casino Royale 1967. There you go. That poor guy. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating career. And, uh, you know, I, in, in terms of, I don't even know, are we calling this an adaptation? Uh, the adaptation te- credit gets, so. uh, goes to Angus McPhail, um, w- a weird sort of secondary, you know, screenplay by Ben Hecht. Uh, adaptation by Angus McPhail. You know, it's such a strange thing. I, I I feel I don't know. Reading about the book, I mean, the 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 House of Doctor Edwards that this was based on. The the basic plot is a psychiatrist at an asylum. Um, I mean, it is about to get a new director, so that part is kind of the same. But uh, the way that it plays out is it's one of these stories where everything's not what they say. And some people are, you know, there's a lot of crazy going on here, basically. It's one of those sorts of stories. And it, it I think it very much kind of holds, uh, I, I, without having read the book, my understanding is the whole thing pretty much centers around this place and trying to figure out what's real. Who else in the cast uh, struck you as interesting? I would like to open the bidding with Michael Chekhov as Dr. Alexander Brulov. Why is that? Because he amused me. <laughs> I, I... <laughs> well, Pete, that doesn't take much. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. So uh, che- uh, Michael Chekhov is at least the character of Brulov. I, you know, he is the the uh, um, mentor character. Uh, he is the uh, character who she retreats to. He was one of her teachers. Uh, and he's the, I, I don't know, he's sort of the Einstein gestalt, right? Uh, kind of the wacky German accent. <laughs> yes, there's a little of that. Uh, just <laughs> For a, sure. Just, just a, bit. a skosh. <laughs> I, I think he has this exchange with her that feels so redemptive to me until she starts talking. And that exchange is, look, Constance, you're nuts. We have to call the police. He's a murderer. We're not going to go any further. I drugged him, so he's knocked out. Now we're going to call the police and resolve this. Don't you? We're not going to do your plan. We're going to do my plan. And then she starts talking, and she begs and begs him to become to join her little Scooby gang, so that she can figure out what the true story is and present this case to the police, all uh, all bundled up and. 
I just uh, I, I find that is the the angle that I felt like I needed to be a, a bit more of an anchor in the second half of the film. I feel like it would have been a greater obstacle to her uh, that she would have to get over using whatever mechanism that she could. And instead, he he's he becomes sort of part of her solution. And, and I found that not satisfactory. Uh, but I do enjoy his performance and I enjoy the delight that he gets out of being a psychoanalyst. And uh, the exchange that she has when he sort of sleepwalks downstairs uh, with the uh, razor blade uh, as he drugs uh, you know, he as as the doctor drugs Gregory Peck, uh, and we we uh, we fade out on the drink of water, of drink of milk. Uh, I I think it's just a it, it's a great sequence between the two of them, and uh, he is so casual and cavalier, and uh, as an as an old man that uh, I find him really appealing. He's a highlight in this movie for me. Yeah, right. I think that he's great. He he works nicely in the part. It's it is uh, a little bit of kind of the you know the Einstein ish kind of smart scientist character that's quirky and all of that. Um, but I I think that he does play it well. And that scene in particular where where Ballantyne comes down the stairs with the razor blade is a really interesting one. And I, I like the way that, uh, that Chekhov plays his scene. It works pretty well. And I am equally frustrated by the fact that, uh, you know, um, Dr. Peterson convinces him about, you know, love and all this sort of stuff. And it just, it's a little much. She should have just, she should have drugged Brulov's drink and then, <laughs> then taken off. That's what should have happened. Something, right, yeah. right. Uh, I think so too. I should I should say he is actually not German. He is Russian, very Russian, and um, I should have said that. But the stereotype I think is alive and well in this movie. <laughs> he feels very much uh, like a German. He's yeah, playing right. German. Yeah. Uh, so he has not been in much, and we certainly haven't talked uh, about anything else that right. he has done. Small small film career for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So who's your favorite? Well, Leo G. Carroll, I think, is just a delight every time he's on screen. I really enjoy uh, his performance here as Dr. Murchison. I think it works well because it's, well, it's it's an interesting one. I, I guess I can't say it's that interesting of a performance. It's a pretty straightforward performance because it's one of those, you know, guilty party performances where the whole role is written in a pretty clean way where there's not clues at all that he's actually the guilty party. Like if you watch this movie up to the point where he accidentally gives a, gives it away, you'd yeah. never, there's no clues. This is not an Agatha Christie story where you can go back and go, Oh, but he did this and this is the thing. It's right. like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of frustrating to that extent because it's not clear at all. But I think that he does it well, and I think that his final performance with uh, Ingrid Bergman at the end is really nice. And he is a character who has graced a number of Hitchcock films, and I think it's great to see him in, I believe this is his first Hitchcock. Uh, no, I take it back. He was in Rebecca as well. And so he's uh, he's been in um, working with Hitchcock since then. And I, you know, he was also in Suspicion and then this and and he would go on to do uh, a number of other Hitchcock performances, not the least of which North by Northwest is uh, a great one where he's the professor and he gets to handle all the fun MacGuffin stuff. So it's he's a great actor, a kind of a character actor. Again, it's not his greatest performance here, but I find him to be very memorable still. Man, yeah, I this makes me want to go back and watch all of the man from Uncle. He was Alexander <laughs> Waverly, Quentin Lester Baldwin in uh, and, and Quentin Lester Baldwin in the man from Uncle, all 105 episodes. That's uh, a lot of watching. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, he's <laughs> he is. Uh, he's one of those uh, guys. Professor, spy. Uh, he's police officer. He's he's that guy. Uh, in these uh, movies, nice, nice, robust list of credits there. Um, well, and speaking of cast, I, I think that we 
now that we're entering the world of Hitchcock, we can't really continue without talking about Hitchcock's cameo because he did that in in a good number of his films. And certainly we have the cameo in this film. What I find interesting about this cameo is that it actually was pointed out in the trailer. (laughs) Twice. Twice. (laughs) And even they do a freeze frame on it. Just And the narrator is like, no, this ordinary man is the film's director. They make it so clear that this is the cameo, because I think by this point, Hitchcock was kind of done with doing these cameos, but everyone expected it. So he kept doing it and did it pretty early in the film just to get it out of the way. Yeah, I I was wondering if you if that violates some sort of rule. Is it is it technically at this point a cameo since they call it out so uh, obviously in the very trailer for the film? Oh, sure. I mean, it still is a little performance, a little special performance, which largely is what a cameo is. So it's not it doesn't need to be a surprise or anything. But, you know, he's so anyway, he's he's coming out of an elevator. This is when Constance goes to New York and she's waiting at the Empire State Hotel for Ballantyne to come out. And when the door opens, we see Hitchcock come out carrying a violin case and uh, it walks off screen. And that's the extent of it. And he's smoking a cigar that's actually a human finger. Go watch it. You'll find it. It's there. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. All right. Uh, camera by George Barnes. Uh, man behind the camera. What do we think of George Barnes' work here? It's, I I feel like, you know, it's it's frustrating. I think that there are better looking Hitchcock films. That being said, I think that they do some nice noirish kind of mystery. They're playing with the suspense, kind of the the genre looks a lot of harsh shadows, especially when she's walking around the the uh, the hospital at night and looking under the door and we see the light under there. And there are moments that I think work fairly well. It's not the greatest, but I think that it it's fitting in with kind of the looks that Hitchcock was was largely getting when he first came to to Hollywood. And I mean, this is a guy who worked with him on Rebecca. So there obviously was a little bit of uh, some work together, which, you know, I, I think they hadn't worked together since, which makes me think that he likely was somebody who worked at Selznick's uh, studio and and just kind of did films yeah. at that kind of was he was just a you know one of the part of the guy. machine just another yep. cog just kind of cranking through stuff well when you look at the number of films per year that he averaged right through the third 20s 30s 40s he was yeah. he was that guy right he was just you know spinning the reel and uh but but you know i to your point i think they do a, a fine job of celebrating some of the noir look and playing with light and giving us particularly we've already talked about that that one sequence when uh ballantine comes down those stairs it's it's a haunting uh, yeah, look, sure. he gets down there. There's low camera. We're focused on the the knife in the foreground, the razor blade in the foreground. As the doctors run it, walking around in the background, like you just never know when the hand's going to come up. It is. It's one of the most intense sequences of the film, and and uh, I, I think it it celebrates kind of what these guys did together to capture the Hitchcock that I love. Yeah, yeah. So. No, I, I I I think that's a fair point. The music, Andy. The music. Oh my goodness! Yes. Uh, what What did you think of the music? And can we turn it up any louder? <laughs> What's funny about the music is Hitchcock apparently wasn't a fan of it, and in fact, as I mentioned earlier, the the book that uh, that Truffaut did with him, he brought up the scene when uh, I can't remember exactly where it is, but it's when. Um, it's when they first kiss, actually. And, and uh, uh, Hitchcock, well, Truffaut says to Hitchcock, uh, he says, uh, there are some very beautiful scenes in the picture. For instance, the one showing the seven doors opening after the kiss and even the first meeting between Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. That was so clearly love at first sight. And Hitchcock says, unfortunately, the violins begin to play just then. That was terrible. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Not a fan. But that being said, you know, regardless of of how the music might have played in the film and what Hitchcock thought of it, I think it's a fantastic score. I think it's it full is. of romance and it's full of intrigue and mystery. And I think it works really well. It's a score for the wrong movie. 
Never well, have I. Th- it's a good score that just doesn't work. Scene after scene after scene. She has this sequence where she's sneaking around and and she's trying to, you know, she's trying to scope out some stuff and and you know things are coming clear to her all of a sudden and she's starting to understand more and this romantic theme keeps getting louder and louder and I don't know what it's supposed to do. It's not building suspense. It's not. It's just annoying and I want it to shut up because that symphony playing in that little room as she's sneaking around is gonna give her away Andy it's gonna give her away and I got (laughs) mad and I thought okay this would be great as the as the soundtrack to like the Prince of Tides but it was not great for the soundtrack to Spellbound Uh, you know I I think that you're being a little harsh on it I think that it actually (laughs) it, it moves nicely from the romance to the intrigue I actually I like it in context of the film I it may be a little strong. I I can see why Hitchcock said it gets in the way of his direction, but I still I I don't know. I I don't think it's quite that bad. And I love that there's a theremin in it. This is something that <laughs> yes. that uh, Miklos Rosa. Um, this was kind of he pioneered the use of it in scores starting here. And this was kind of uh, it was actually another score that he did this year uh, last weekend. Both of those included the theremin to the point where I think that they actually accused him of of copying himself or reusing his own music, uh, some of his cues in the two scores, which I think is pretty interesting. I, um, it's, yeah, it's a great score. I, it's, I find it hard to argue against you too much because (laughs) I do think that it's a little problematic for the film, but man, I just love listening to it. It's just, it's just some beautiful, beautiful stuff. Well, and it, it, this Miklos Rosa has a connection to one of your very favorite composers. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is really interesting that his score here is what inspired Jerry Goldsmith to become a film composer, which I think uh, it's, it's got to count for something, man. For future theremin uh, use uh, abounds, <laughs> thanks to that. Well, and it's interesting because Hitchcock would go on uh, to work with uh, Bernard Herrmann quite a bit after this. And Selznick wanted Bernard Herrmann to score this film, but he was unavailable. And that's why Miklos came on. And I don't think Hitchcock was thrilled. But hey, it worked great for Miklos, which, I mean, he won an Oscar for this. Again, because it's a great score. Yeah. It's just not good for this movie. Okay. How did it do in award season? Well, speaking of awards, as I just mentioned, Miklos did win uh, the the Academy Award for Best Music, scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture for this film. It did get uh, five other nominations that, unfortunately, it lost to. For Best Picture, it was nominated, but lost to, as I just mentioned, The Lost Weekend. Likewise, uh, Billy Wilder won uh, Best Director for The Lost Weekend, and Alfred Hitchcock did not get an Oscar for this one. Um, the best actor in a supporting role. You'll be thrilled to hear that that your man, um, uh, Michael Chekhov, was nominated for best supporting actor for his role in this film. I find that a little surprising. I didn't think it was Oscar worthy. I thought it was fine, yeah. but but apparently uh, they thought it was good enough to nominate, not good enough to win. He lost to James Dunn for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> That's the uh, the the very literary version of Brooklyn. Yes, apparently. <laughs> A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Um, and we were just talking about the cinematography. Um, it's it was nominated, and I think it's largely for scenes like the one that we talked about, where uh, where a Valentine comes down the stairs with the knife in his hand, and probably the dream sequence. Yeah. Um, it did lose to the picture of Dorian Gray. And last but not least, best effects, the special effects uh, for the dream sequence here, lost to a film called Wonder Man. I haven't seen that. I haven't either. It's a it's Danny Kaye film. <laughs> I, uh, I'm really curious about it now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Nope. Never heard of it. Add it to nope. the list, intern. There you go. All right. How to do at the box office. Well, Hitchcock ended up with a budget of $1.5 million, which is about $20 million in today's dollars. The movie had a fitting premiere on Halloween 1945 in New York City before having a wider national release just after Christmas on December 28th, 1945, opposite Fritz Lang's Scarlet Street, another one we've talked about on the show. The movie went on to make just under $6.4 million, which is about $85.4 million in today's dollars. 
That proved a success for Hitch and his team, as it became the second highest grossing film in the U.S. that year, just behind the bells of St. Mary's, earning an adjusted profit per finished minute of 588.6 thousand. Take it to the bank, Hitch. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, the second of the three films that he was contractually obligated to do with Selznick. Uh, it would be a little bit of time before he'd get to the third one. Um, and we'll probably talk about that next week when we talk about Notorious because it was tied up in all of that as well. Well, I am glad we started talking about it. I think it's a showcase for, you know, a weird character role that sometimes highlights the capability of our principal character, uh, Ingrid Bergman. Uh, mostly she's hidden behind kind of a lame romance story. Uh, okay, is what it is. Now we have to find out where the rubber meets the road when we rank it. Let's do it. <laughs> Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see the list of all the movies that we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, you'll be able to jump straight to this movie where you can add it to your flick chart list and see how it stacks up to ours. First up, Spellbound or Rocky 3. Hmm. I'll take Spellbound. <laughs> this is already hard. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go with you on Spellbound, and I kind of regret it. <laughs> That's funny. I thought I pegged you as a Rocky Three man right there. Uh, well, should, hopefully this will only make it easier now as we go through yeah. the rest of these. Spellbound yeah. or Fargo? Fargo. Definitely Fargo. Yeah. Spellbound or Mother? Mother. Mother from me, too. I like the Spellbound poster. It has them hugging and he's holding the 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 razor and the the tag on it is will he kiss me or kill me? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Spellbound or Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street. There's a man who knows how to use a razor. That is a great opportunity for a razor <laughs> joke. True. Yeah. Uh I'm going to be Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd for me too. Spellbound or Creep Show? Oh, Absolutely geez. Creep Show. Creep Show. Spellbound or The Road Warrior. Absolutely, The Road Warrior. Road Warrior. Spellbound or Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond. Spellbound or The Lion in Winter. The Lion take, in Winter. I was, I was wondering where you were going to go with this one. I, I yeah. will take The Lion in Winter as well. Spellbound or A Star is Born, 1937. Oh, dear. I'm definitely taking A Star is Born. Okay, me too. Well, that puts Spellbound smack dab in the middle of our chart. 203 out of 405. Wow. Oh that might become a block. I think it's going to be yeah, a new Spellbound block we're going to end up the with. Spellbound block. How did it do yeah. in your uh, your own ranking? This was one I, uh, I, I feel like I've fluctuated um, in the past and even now on my rankings for this one, because it's one of those ones that I, I like, I have a lot of weird issues with it's, it's so strange. Um, I feel like I'm at a two and a half, but I still give it a heart. Okay. Well, I started this whole conversation with, with a bit of a, a, a protective language around what I thought of this movie, that I had to put on the Ebert glasses. Uh, you know, does the film succeed at what it was trying to do in its universe? And I feel like I was able to do that for the duration of our conversation. And I should also add, I don't like living in that world at all. I think <laughs> if it's a true classic film, it should stand the test of time. And this movie does not uh, for me. It landed at an 8 14 out of 1087 on uh, my uh, flick chart list that if I go by the algorithm for letterbox.com slash the next reel puts it at one and a half stars. And uh, I, I, I think I can be persuaded uh, if, if I think about the the Hitchcock hopefulness of the movies to come in the fifties, uh, I could give it a, a two star, but I, I'm not going to give it a, a heart on this one. I'm, I'm not going to go back and, and watch this again, unless, you know, it's part of another sort of project. It, it, it feels like a movie that was of its time and I'm okay leaving it there. 
Uh, For me, it's a film I do still enjoy revisiting. I find it to be an interesting Hitchcock film to experience. It certainly is one that I will revisit because I've always enjoyed it. It's for all of its kind of crazy uh, nonsense as far as how they're doing the psychoanalysis and analyzing the dreams and all that stuff. It's so silly, but... I end up just, you know, I go with it. And and sure, it's like this this kind of ridiculous, unbelievable insta-love that they have here in this film. But even that, I'm just like, you know, I just kind of go with the flow with the movie. And so I end up having an, a pretty easy time with it. For me, it ended up higher than I would have expected. It landed at 1,035 out of 4,142, oh, wow. which is like a 75%. Yeah. And it, but I still don't find myself liking it that much, but I still enjoy watching it. And so I think that's the kind of the dilemma I end up with. And I think that's why I, I feel totally comfortable at a two and a half. And I also feel comfortable giving it the heart. So, All right. Well, we ended is. up pretty close, but I think our motivations were quite different. Which no, I think is we ended up amusing. complete opposite. You were like on the bottom seventy-five percent. Like you're you're at twenty-five percent on your. I, chart. I know, and yet, but we're a we're a two and a two and a half stars. That's not that oh, far that, apart. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. So no, I am right. I am amused by that. Um, yeah. And uh, so it, anyway, it, it's it was a good movie to start with uh, for Hitchcock. And I'm, I'm excited because where can we possibly go from here? Well, we are not going very far. We are going to go just a just a hop, skip and a jump over to the next film with uh, Ingrid Bergman and Alfred Hitchcock. We're going to be looking at Notorious. Uh, you're a you're a fan of Notorious. You know, I am. I this is another one I haven't watched in a little while, and I'm curious how it's going to hold up because I was like, because I really like Spellbound, and I'm like, oh, some issues with that one. But again, that's also why I'm going back and revisiting uh, Hitchcock's films because I'm uh, re re uh, examining them, finding things that I have issues with and things that may work better. So I'm curious to see. How Notorious stacks up. Well, I'm just excited to, to spend a little time with Cary Grant again. Uh, that's always a good thing. Can and we can never... talk uh, age differences some more and see that's right. where we land with that one. Woo-hoo. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, check out our other show, The Marvel Movie Minute. We're talking about the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time, starting with 2008's Iron Man. You can support that show and all of our shows over on thenextreel.com slash Patreon, where you can also get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. <laughs> you know, I got to say, there's kind of a, uh, there's an even split. It, uh, the, we've got 57% five stars, uh, which is lower than I, I guess I would have expected. I felt like I would be an outlier, but it turns out, I think there were, there, there was a nice even long tail of people who didn't like the movie or had trouble with their DVDs. Uh, yeah, I never understand the the math over there because fifty seven, sixty seven, seventy seven. Anyway, yeah, I guess so. A lot of five and four stars, really. Yeah, it's the yeah the three, two, and one stars really are mostly people just they just they hate just, the DVD itself, they, the physical yeah, plastic. Just, it's a it's a problematic release. Criterion released it a while back, but that's fallen out of print, and now you know this this premiere collection. I don't even know if it's something that's really accessible. Like it's a seventy dollar disc, and I think that's because it's not really available anymore. Yeah, I just right. you know it's this is one of those examples of why we need people to figure out this whole film distribution system so these older films can still be watched easily without having to you know fork over seventy dollars to somebody who's right. hijacking you for your for your money well although I should say it is a relief to see in the five star category I think this is the first time I've run across this in a long time somebody who actually takes the time to write in a five star review that says the movie and the case are in great shape. Five stars. 
<laughs> When's the last time we had that? Anyway, I did go high. I have a high uh, review because I was less favorable of the film. And if you don't mind, uh, I'll go ahead and kick us off. Go for it. All right. Uh, Jackie writes that the doctor becomes human. Up until Dr. Constance Peterson meets the new head of the clinic, Ingrid Bergman has seemed like an unfeeling person, detached from other humans. Then she becomes a real woman through trying to help her co-star Gregory Peck as Dr. Edwards find out what has made this man fearful. Five stars. Wow. You could read that another way and actually hear why I am not as favorable in this film. This is a lenticular postcard of reviews. This is, uh, yeah, this is a very much a five-star review of the romance novel yes. <laughs> playing within this film. Well, I went the other way. I have a two-star by Dr. Pretorius, who says, oh, Hitch. Oh, I'm so glad you've got a doctor, though. Really, yeah, I needed to go medical. You know, yes. this, is, this is a very clinical. This is absolutely the worst Hitchcock film ever. There are some great visuals, and the Dolly scenes are superb, but the script and the acting are just embarrassing. I know that those are more naive times and that psychotherapy was kind of new to them, but really, how could anyone think that any psychoanalyst would act that way? I was just embarrassed for everyone involved. Wow. It's yeah, a real personal is. affront. Yeah, this person really has a problem with uh, poor psychotherapy uh, depictions. We should do, we should, we should figure out how to solve this problem. You know, <laughs> the problem of psychotherapy and film. Psychotherapy and film. <laughs> <laughs> Spinoff show, next reel and your shrink. Mm -hmm. I'm very excited. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>